Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. Today, please help me welcome Omar Ramirez. Omar is the co-founder of Collective, a platform curating resources for professionals at the intersection of work and place. Omar's extensive experience in workplace design and facilities programs includes working with top companies such as Google, Atlassian, Netflix, Dropbox, Stripe, and Miro. He is also the co-host of the True Understanding podcast, so be sure to check it out. Together with Omar, we'll be talking about creating more productive and fulfilling work environments from his point of view. So let's dive in and learn from Omar's valuable insights. So since you went there, why don't we start there? Sure. Yeah, I know. I know when we spoke last, you'd said that you were you had started this new venture. So why don't you tell us a little bit about about it? What inspired you? Uh, what's the intent and, and who would benefit? Yeah. So Collective is we say we're curating resources at the intersection of work and place. And it started from this idea my co-founder Kayla and I had uh, that we just couldn't find the information we really wanted to find in an easy manner. We thought that from the beginning of our careers, it's been very hard for somebody coming up in workplace who isn't going to a traditional FM four-year program at Cornell um, or somewhere like that to get into the world of workplace and truly start to understand, okay, where can I find information? What websites are good, have good quality information? Where can I get information? Now it's even more confusing with like looking at the future of work and trying to understand what is happening in the world of work and place. Um, and those two things have a little bit disjointed a little bit in our minds. And so we started with this idea of how can we bring information and curate information for people and bring that, you know, better clarity and quality of information together in one place. And that's the problem statement we started with. And now it has um, three iterations grown into a much larger idea, uh, which is why we co-founded the company called Collective now. Uh, and we're going to be building the company over the next year. You know, we're starting slow. We're starting small with uh, iterations with our website. So we're launching the website this coming Wednesday, um, which will be, I guess, gosh, I guess that's the 15th of February, whenever this you know, goes out. Um, so we're launching the website, launching the initial newsletter to bring people together. And then we'll be, you know, formulating the community portion of this. And then um, over time, building out the other aspects of Collective, which includes, you know, everything from a community forum and like an in-person community events and then some other um, implementations that we're you know, in, the, in the process of going out and building and starting to get resources to build right now. Interesting. So I have to ask you, with all the latest stuff in the news and the media, all the craze around chat <laughs> GPT, like it's funny because just this morning I was talking to my daughter about something completely unrelated around use case for chat GPT and how community building in the traditional sense of like just bringing knowledge and all that stuff together, you know, which had tremendous value uh, in the past mm -hmm. and still today, that's going to be completely disrupted as a result of using AI because everybody's inputting information into ChatGPT or whatever 
AI system that they're using. And I'm just seeing like even myself, for example, I've been using ChatGPT since it became available. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding every day when I put stuff in there and, you know, just even ask it to edit stuff that I've written, it recalls some of the stuff that I put in like months ago, which is creepy, but cool in a way. And it's like, okay, it's obviously, you know, learning about me, my writing style, the knowledge, because I'm not only just extracting information, but I'm also putting information in. And I'm just thinking, how, how, if at all, do you think that that would impact this idea that you have? Yeah, it definitely is something we're constantly thinking about. You know, we're we're using ChatGPT to ideate blog posts and things of that nature already, like for the future, some future iterations of the site. You know, we're not starting off by writing our own articles, frankly, because um, there's a lot of articles out there and there's a lot of great websites and there's a lot of good information. So we're trying to highlight some of the information that we think is good quality before we go and start trying to write our own. Um, not that we don't already write and do podcasting, et cetera, obviously. Um, but I think ChatGPT in its current state is actually very interesting from a technological technological perspective of I have X question and I want a answer, right? You want the answer, um, which I think in workplace world, especially because we've considered the idea of, like, you know, putting a ChatGPT helper bot who's trained on workplace and facilities management and just on these knowledge bases into the site. Uh, our cautionary approach there is that if we did that, how do we ensure that's up-to-date information? Because it, it, as you know, in workplace, a lot of it is nuanced, right? It's it's based on a number of variables, and those variables are very dependent on the type of company, the industry they're in, where they're located you know, geographically, whether it's city, state, country, those all are a factor, and then what your local rules and regulations are. So there's a lot of things that go into play that are nuanced. And I don't think chat GPT is really quite there yet. I think eventually models will get there from everything I've been reading at least. Um, but I think it is a helpful tool currently for ideation and iteration and helping to condense information. Like if you have a 14 page article and you just want three bullet points, it can, it's very helpful for that, for example. I think those kinds of use cases are really good for it right now. I'm very interested in see what it does in the future. Like obviously there's as a, you know, photographer, and sometimes artists, you know, I do have some cautionary approach to it as well from the standpoint of, okay, where is the information coming from? How do we attribute it to people without, like, you know, stealing their ideas and stealing their creative output? Um, so I think there's, you know, questions around that, obviously. Uh, but, yeah, so I think it's a fascinating thing, and we're definitely thinking about how to integrate something like it into our approach um, because the problem we started with was obviously the idea of information and there's new information being created every single day, but at the same time, part of the collective's purpose is to help solve or alleviate some of the old problems of workplace. You know, people keep recreating a three-year budget or recreating X template every time they go to a new company or every time some new junior person starts and office an office manager and office assistant. There's no reason why if we've been doing, you know, workplace moves and space planning for over 50 years now, that we have to keep recreating those templates. Those templates should be, they, they do exist, and often they exist in someone else, someone's personal folder that never gets released to anybody. What we want to do is help bring those resources together. So we're not actually really heavily monetizing the first part of Collective. The first part of Collective is about bringing together those resources, templates, and aggregating them as a community so we can focus on solving the higher level or higher order problems together. And that's what the second, uh, you know, I would say phase two of collective is about is like solving those higher order problems. That's pretty cool. So when you talk about um, 
sort of this aggregation of tools or at least exposing the tools that are used and are constantly being recreated because I can totally relate to that. Um, where do you see that in terms of its relevance, given where we are right now and what we're sort of foreshadowing to be what the office is or will be in the not too distant future? Yeah, I, I think the tools are constantly changing. You know, some of the tools will always remain the same. It's kind of how I think about design in some ways. A table is always going to be a table. We're, we're not probably going to make the table much better than it is today. You know, the table has been the same way for thousands of years. We might add technology on top of it. We might change the little features of it. We might change the aesthetics of a table that, you know, raise or lower it in the, the design realm or the de- design aesthetic. But a table still is just a table. So I think, you know, we think about space planning and approaching things like that. Yes, the methodologies might change or the variables might change, but there's still some basic approaches to space planning that just make sense. And so if we can bring together templates for those things and bring together, you know, frameworks for those things, we can cut out some of the the same similar chat GPT, right? Cutting out some of the, the non-thought processing, non-creative work that doesn't need to be, you know, done repetitively and enable people to focus on the other things later. So I think some of the tools will still make sense. Some of them will slowly die out, right? And I think some of them will die out faster if we can get people better educated about workplace and better educated about the cross-sectional specialties that they kind of ignore sometimes. We all look at the problem through our own lens. Like I look at it through a multifaceted lens because I've worked in different roles from FM to CRE to PM. But often, and I think we see this a lot in LinkedIn comment sections, you know, someone will put up a post and someone will look at it through uh, an FM lens and they'll be like, oh, well, the plumbing's the problem. And then the CRE person comes in like, no, the lease is the problem. It's a landlord issue. And then like, you know, the technology person comes in and be like, why wasn't there a sensor? And it's like, we're all looking at it through our lenses. Yeah. But we want to enable people to learn cross-sectionally so that they can all have a better understanding and, you know, solve problems together. And like, that's part of what Collective's name is about is actually you know, bringing this collective of different professions together and helping them understand that we all are one. We're not a bunch of, you know, disconnected people. We all affect the other person. So this is interesting. So when I think about um, traditional collaborations, if you will, within organizations, specifically Mm -hmm. revolving around corporate real estate, I mean, we all know, you know, HR and IT and corporate real estate need to work together. I mean, the interlock between those three is really, really key. But I've also learned over the years that you also have other teams in organizations. And I think it's probably become even more obvious since the pandemic kind of hit and more so people working from home, how legal gets involved and Mm -hmm. corporate communications and brand and all these other things that you never really thought of. I mean, some of the companies that were more on the edge did. Because yeah. a lot of the decisions were not just real estate based. I mean, they were, but they they were smart enough to realize the impact that it had potentially on the other areas. And you needed to make sure that you had all your I's dotted and your T's crossed before you, you know, pull the trigger, so to speak. Um, do you foresee that being part of collective in, in the near future or in the longer term future? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the you know, one of the first things we're actually doing is bringing Um, One of the first in-person events I should say we're planning on doing is a dinner series where we're calling them collective experiences, but we want to bring together groups of 10 people in different cities. And we're already planning our first one for Los Angeles in March, at the end of March. 
by bringing together, you know, two people from HR, two people from CRE, two people from workplace, and then two people from the technology side of things, and bringing those people together for cross, uh, you know, cross-sectional dialogue, as I would describe it, to start sharing ideas and building that community and building uh, relationships with people who might not be on your direct team as the HR person, but familiarizing yourself more with people who are in the HR profession, understanding their you know, what makes their brain tick? Why are they concerned about X? Why are they concerned about Y? And understanding their needs and concerns. And I think building that cross-sectional relationship um, will enable people to have a better viewpoint when they're going into their own company and having to work cross-sectionally. Because you're absolutely correct. Like, we're all revolving. And the diagram we always draw, right, is the employee at the center and all these little bubbles just revolving around them. And you have, you know, you're right, comms, HR, IT, workplace, CRE, FM. Whenever I say workplace, CRE, and FM, people are always like, oh, well, isn't FM and CRE workplace? I'm like, not that, not necessarily. <laughs> and that's the nuance, right? It's like, not necessarily. I, I think when we think about all those groups coming together, legal included, that is the total employee experience, right? Because you can't make decisions about employee experience without understanding the legalities, especially in light of some recent, like, you know, court rulings. And you can't make decisions about you know, benefits without understanding the constraints of your finance org. And there's all these things are interconnected. And I think if we have, if we can learn to work together better as humans, the outcomes will become better because it will no longer be the approach of, oh, we meet once a quarter. This is my budget. That's your budget. Everyone split apart. And then we try to accomplish things in tandem. I think that's not really a good approach for the future of work. I think it's a great way to produce substandard outcomes if we can all work together and actually work cross-sectionally and understand that this is like a, a holistic problem, then I think we will create better outcomes. And that, in the end, is our altruistic goal with Collective. And that's where we started from was, you know, creating a better opportunity for the future of workplace. Because right now we're kind of lost in the woods and we want to help people kind of navigate their way through this and find the signals and the noise if you're reliant currently on as many people we have surveyed are, we did a survey a few months ago and we found that like 94% of people were reliant on uh, social media or LinkedIn for their future of work information. And that's a huge problem because SEO is not based on you know, the best in class research. SEO is based on optimization of search performance, uh, which, again, this might be a good thing that ChatGPT is disrupting this and you know, helping us mm-hmm. get past that. But I don't think LinkedIn's going anywhere, and that's where most people get their future of work news. And um, it's not necessarily the best research, right? Because I think for everyone, I think knows that the Future Forum exists. I am constantly surprised when I mention the Future Forum in their research or Miller Knoll in their research at the people who don't know that stuff exists, and they're just the tip of the iceberg. Like they're some of the better known ones. And then you go into like you know people. Um, like Nick at Stanford and you know, Arpit hmm. Gupta at Columbia, and like you know, like get down into the research levels. There's so many people doing great research and like true like large studies of humans about the future of work and where we could be headed. And I don't think a lot of that is getting a light shown on it. And that's what we want to do is shine a light a little bit. And that's what we're doing with our newsletter, especially is shining a light on people who might not be getting enough attention, who are doing great research and doing great things. And then shining lights on products that might not be getting enough attention or might not just be breaking through that SEO barrier. Yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. So um, question, when it comes to just some of the challenges when you're talking about, like, the difficulties that we've had in the past, again, just kind of thinking back on being in organizations, working with many 
corporate real estate teams, both as a consultant and also working directly, actually being part of a corporate real estate organization. One of the things that I often found and have still found up until recently is this sense of or weird sense of ownership in the sense that the people who are in this space, because it's a new sort of emerging cool thing or whatever, it's kind of like there's this, I don't even know how to describe it. There's almost like this desire that someone in the organization wants to be the person that said, you know, I did that. They're the champion of bringing that change forward. And so Mm -hmm. not necessarily recognizing that it takes a village, (laughs) literally, right? Um, How much of that do you think will change as you know, as we move forward, both as a result of obviously what you're doing, which sounds really exciting, but even from an organizational point of view, because it feels like that's still very much alive in many organizations. Yeah. And I I think that I'm kind of of two minds on this, because I think that in the end, we want to we want to have people who are champions and it's great to have people who are, you know, very vocal about the change and very vocal about, you know, championing, you need champions internally to, you know, move things forward sometimes, especially when not everyone's on board. And you might have somebody who's really motivated from the IT department, who's like really like excited about championing this thing. And you might have somebody from the workplace side who's not, and that's okay. Like it works both ways sometimes, right? Like sometimes it's the workplace person who's super excited about championing it and the you know, IT person might not be as excited or as motivated. And I think the magic starts to happen when you, all of you are on the same page and all of you are, like, in the same, like, level of motivation to be championing that stuff. And that's when you get those teams who I think are – you're less focused on one person or one person as, like, the hero. I think there's also the very negative side of this, which is some people like to play hero ball. And, you know, in the leadership mm-hmm. classes I've taken, you know, the idea is that, you know, like, if there's a hero, there has to be a villain, Right. in that two player model. OK, so some who's the enemy of the hero? Right. It's like when people have these binary conversations on LinkedIn, it's like, oh, it's all in office or it's all remote or if it's all X or all Y. Like they need some sort of um, I and the other to parry against in order to make their point seem more relevant. And I think that's the negative side of it is if you have one person who's like the focal point and championing it, there's if I guarantee you. On any workplace effort, there's 50 people working on this effort, right? There's not just one person. And that that's always hard for me to swallow when you see one person as, like, the very focal point of, like, this, like, change or, like, even, like, you know, the heads of workplace transformation or heads of remote that we keep seeing pop up. Great people, great practitioners. But there are definitely 50-plus other people involved in that change process and, like, the the formulation of these things takes so much time. So I think that gets a little lost. And I yeah. I worry that when we start um, having heroes, quote unquote, um, that we, we miss out on the the team win, uh, which is, I think, an important part of this is that we're all, there's not just one person working to make change. Yeah. I also find it interesting what you're saying about, um, you know, LinkedIn being sort of the source for information when it comes to the future of work. Uh, one of the things that I've, observed is and even just in my own day-to-day conversations discussions that either I participate in or that people start on my feed is it's more workplace practitioners than people who actually are in how do how do I put like people that are actually in workplaces that are in dire need of change I mean they're Mm -hmm. they're there you know that they're there you know and they're observants more than they are participants right and so 
it's interesting to me that, you know, it's like you're preaching to the choir a lot of the times, right? Is, is that if people are in sort of that space, they kind of know what the issues, the challenges, potentially kind of where, you know, some immediate correction might need to happen or improvement opportunities. But to your point is, is that there's, it's kind of expanding because there's so many other areas that are, that the decisions or these, the ways in which decisions have been made now are having impact on other areas of the organization. So like I said, we mm-hmm. talked about legal, we talked about finance, we talked about, you know, HR and policies, um, you know, and, and the list kind of goes on and on. Um, what One of the things that surprises me, though, is, you know, there are organizations like Cornet and uh, IFMA and, you know, that become or you would think that they would or even like even in HR. So even just thinking about like, you know, HR, you've got Sherm. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. It's like you would think that those would be the places that are talking like in great detail about the challenges and, and the interlock that's required between these various teams. And you, you don't really see much of that. It's like, you know, corporate real estate is corporate real estate. HR is HR which I've always found really, really interesting because we've all known for many, many years that there's there's a requirement for these groups to work together. But when you look at, you know, conferences or opportunities for these worlds to come together, mm-hmm. you never really see that, right? No, you never really see it. I think, you know, the conferences tend to take one focus or the other, right? You see like a people-centric conference or a you know, workplace focused conference or like, none of us are really going to the same events. Like you'll sometimes, yes, you will see like Cornet Global is a good example of this. You will run into a lot of architects at yes. Cornet because they're hanging out with the brokers and they're like, you know, working with the PMs and the construction people. And so you'll see a lot of that intersectionality. But good luck finding one people oriented uh, <laughs> presentation. Like you're starting to see smatterings of very few and far between or an HR person at Cornet. Um, I think it's very similar with IFMA and things of that nature, you know, and, and I see the opposite side as well, because, you know, having you know been a designer myself as well, like I went to Salone last year with a, a interior design team who I was like, you know, supporting and helping out with some projects and, you know, good luck finding, I found some great workplace people there who I knew actually from the Bay Area and I was like, oh man, like workplace people, yes, but like the majority were interior designers and industrial designers and things of that nature. So like the places that we all go, or Neocon is a good example as well for design in the US. Um, we don't really find each other at these conferences. There's not really a, a series uh, of events yet that brings everyone together um, in a in a larger way. I think for us, we're kind of focused on the smaller community aspect because we found that in having deep intellectual conversations, eight to 10 people is a great amount of people for a wonderful dinner and a wonderful conversation that stays in one conversation, right? Like, you know, keeping one conversation going when you go above eight to 10 people, it's suddenly that you start to get those breaks in conversations. Um, but yeah, I think we, we tend to be in our, what we refer to on the digital uh, front of things as our walled garden of our algorithm mm-hmm. that LinkedIn has developed for us. Um, so if I like open LinkedIn on my friend's laptop and then my laptop and then my other friend's laptop, we all see three different versions of LinkedIn. And I find that fascinating because you're like, okay, well, I thought, you know, like they're like, oh, well, all I'm seeing on LinkedIn is X and all I'm seeing on LinkedIn is Y. And like, it's the same thing on Instagram or TikTok or any of these platforms. Uh, you wind up in this walled garden that you kind of create for yourself. But the problem with that is you're not seeing information, I think, that might challenge you as much. 
um, or might challenge your view of the world as much. And I think that's something we want people to feel is challenged. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why we're going to build a community forum into our site very quickly after our initial launch uh, is because we want to enable people to have intellectual debate and to discuss ideas and not, you know, in the the way that Slack, you know, we do on Slack, at least in some of these like, communities I've been mm-hmm. a part of where it's like, oh, like, does anyone have X or does anyone have Y or like things of the moment? Like, did you see this article? We want to have like true discussions about like what does ABW really mean? What is hybrid? How do you define hybrid? Things of this nature that we think are you know essential to the future of work. Fantastic. I think I think that there's definitely a requirement for something like that. Even as you were talking about just building up the community, the cross section, keeping the the group small, you know, staying to one conversation. Those are all really really key things and. And more so, I think the opportunity to remain curious, because I think that's really the key when it comes to mm-hmm. like LinkedIn, like you were saying about, you know, you've got these, you know, walls around you where you, you, you only see what you see based on what you build for yourself. I mean, my personal experience with any social media platform, I mean, obviously business is a little different than personal because in personal, you kind of <laughs> want to be, you want to be somewhat in within, you know, uh, the wall yeah. space, but you know, when it comes to business, it's, you know, having curiosity, I think, is is the key that, you know, you can't just take what you see on LinkedIn, for example, at face value. You need to go and research and, and poke at different things and say, well, does this actually make sense? And, you know, go way, way back or look to like the stuff that's really current and do that that kind of comparison. There's like hordes of information. I mean, every mm-hmm. every once in a while, I'll come across what appears to be this great new article that was written, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's the, the title is usually very, very now. And then you click on it and you look at the date. That's like thing was written in like 2003. And you're like, wow, that's when you start to realize that, okay, this is how long, at least in my experience, you know, this type of conversation has been going on. And you're like, what the heck? Like, why is it taking so long for people to sort of get with it? Right. And so oh, you're yeah. always, Tempted to share, but you're like, oh, I'm going to get land basic for posting this because it's 2003, <laughs> right? I but mean, it's, I think it's very relevant, right? I think there's still things from the 70s that are relevant, right? Yeah. Like some of the work that, and, you know, this is how I think about it is like there was there was a lot of work that was very aspirational that could have been better, better implemented over time. But I think the problem is we do this thing that's a natural human thing to do is we take something that was a beautiful idea, a beautiful design, or a beautiful concept, and then we um, optimize it, right? And we, like, you know, it's the same thing with the open office, right? Like, Or, like, the cubicle. The action office, too, was, like, a great design and a great idea of, like, working in different modes of setups. It was probably, like, a, I think it was, like, a 12-foot by 12-foot area. It was a pretty large area for the first, like, you know, uh, universal setup. And... I think about what that became over time with a six by six cubicle. And I, it's, you know, it's the optimization of it, not just for costs, but for efficiency. And it becomes this very tailorist approach to the, like, you know, to the action office. Unfortunately, I think we continually see that happening. And I think that, so there's, there's a lot of good lessons, I think, from the, you know, the beginning of workplace, quote unquote, history through now and i think all of them have some like universal truths within them i think the thing that bothers me personally is when you have a a headline that's optimized for seo and it's a turnoff because it's like just optimized for seo obviously and optimized for clicks 
And that might turn some people away from what otherwise might be a great article filled with awesome insights and information. And you're like, well, this headline is not actually what the article is about at all. And that really bothers me because, you know, we want people to, you know, read good research and like find good information. But, you know, the SEO optimization game is um, a huge challenge. I mean, obviously, it's helped people to find information and to sort information and the you know, search changed the way the world works. But I, I think, you know, as we started talking this conversation with ChatGPT, I think it's going to also shift the way the world works in some interesting ways. I think we're still at the very beginnings of it. Um, but I think that I, I'm hopeful that it will help shift some things, maybe away from SEO, maybe more um, based on like the information people are generating and the content uh, as opposed to just the title of an article. Yeah, that's actually a really a really interesting concept. I can totally see a shift like that because of the appetite for just good information and and how hard it is to get and like you said seo has really been well has it been <laughs> the guiding light to get there because as i said you people have gamified it so it's like okay it's not what it used to be and so yeah. now it's just for clicks right so it's like okay you can't really take article titles at face value because you really don't know what's in them unless you go in and you read and it's like time and time again you see comments and you're like okay you know the title is totally clickbait or whatever but there's some good Mm -hmm. points in this article that's worth sharing or you know things like that right well and I i think too something we're thinking about and like we haven't been able to implement this in the website for v1 of the launch because it's very complicated yeah, something we always I always tell people to do when they start reading articles about workplace before they share them is, and you know, Facebook has an interesting feature for this now. When you click to share an article, it's like you didn't read the article. A pop up comes up, and it's like you didn't read the article. Are you sure you want to share this? Because you don't know the context of the article yet. I was like, oh, that's an interesting feature, because the first thing I always say to people when they read an article about workplace and they get really fired up and they're like, this is the truth now. I'm like, okay, wait, but who wrote the article? Who do they work for? Okay, that's two th- great things to check. And then the third thing is, what was the sample size of this study that they're referencing? And sometimes you'll go back and look at the sample sizes, and you're like, this is a 100-person study in the UK 10 years ago. And like, and like they're making this extrapolation, and you're like, is that really going to, like, is that really what is, like, the future of work now? Is this, like, <laughs> this random SEO title generated about this article that somebody picked, you know, cherry-picked a study for that's based on 100 people, written by X person. And so, like, you know, you have to dissect the information a little bit. Yeah. And you know, be critical and to think critically about it. And I think that's important for people to understand. We're trying to figure out a great way to do that on the website, obviously, without, you know, uh, upsetting too many people um, and like, you know, marketing it in a way that's just like, hey, like, just so you know, this is where the information comes from. This is the company it's from. So we're not linking a lot of articles in the beginning on our website under our resources page. We're mostly directing people to organizations, books, uh, podcasts, templates and things of that nature, um, because one, there's so many articles all the time. And we want to be pointing people towards larger resources as opposed to smaller resources in the beginning. And then also because we want to find a great way to tag things that enables people to understand what they're digesting a little bit more. Yeah. This is really fascinating. I said, I, I can't wait till uh, till you launch. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's shift gears a little bit. The last time you and I chatted, I mean, I've been following you on LinkedIn for quite some time. I know that you have quite the background working in real estate in many highly coveted technology companies. Uh, We know that non-tech companies pre-pandemic wanted to be like the tech companies, um, thinking that by having an office space that mimicked those environments, Mm -hmm. that they'd get somehow they'd get the same effect. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So having 
being completely immersed in those worlds, what would you say are the similarities and differences in as you moved across different companies and how they viewed real estate and the role that the office played for the employee? Ooh, that's a lot of questions in there. Um, I guess the similarities I found going from like, you know, as, as I grew up through tech companies, um, it was interesting because I found myself over time going to smaller and smaller companies um, as I took different roles and then helping them to scale upwards. And I thought that was an interesting thing because, you know, it's very hard. I found it's very hard to make change at larger scale tech companies or just larger scale companies in general, because once once the, the cake is baked, and everyone has these roles that they've kind of solidified in and there's a way of doing things, you know, the way we do things, it becomes much harder to implement change as somebody new coming in because there's a lot more considerations, there's a lot more people to talk to, there's a lot more cross-sectional dialogue that has to happen before any change happens. So a change might, in a startup, a change might take two, three months, whereas at a larger scale company like 10,000 plus people, a change could take six months to a year to two years just to get something to change in the larger uh, system that has been developed. So I thought that was actually interesting. But I think you know, at all these different companies I worked at, whether it was like Google or Dropbox or Atlassian, they all had a very specific, thoughtful approach to how they thought about workplace. They all you know, looked at their culture, looked at what their company wanted to accomplish, looked at the kind of company they wanted to scale into and based their workplace off of that. And I think the positive part of that is that they were doing a very thoughtful approach. And I think the negative version of this is what happened when people took, and I call this kind of like the Google Googleification of like your know, workplace, <laughs> where people looked at Google, said, "Oh, it's all about their great, you know, office, the slides, the amenities, blah blah blah." It's like, and they took a surface level, you know, copy paste of Google's, you know, workplace, and started trying to do it. And that was not, and this is what we would have to, you know, have the conversation about whenever I joined, like you know, younger startups was. That is not the most important thing. What made Google's offices great was the culture that was behind it and the intentionality behind the design. I mean, Google in the early days was doing, even the, even their earliest days, they were doing like studies and employing scientists and employing like, you know, people who had like, you know, anthropological style backgrounds in order to understand how people were using the kitchens, what kind of foods were they eating, how can we encourage people to eat like healthier foods. What effect does putting an espresso machine in the kitchen have? Like, okay, if we put that inside, are people less likely to go outside and get coffee? Or are they more likely to stay inside and have discussions about ideas? Okay, let's put whiteboards next to the coffee machines. How does that have an effect? And there were all these, like, you know, little, little nuanced things and thought that at each one of these technology companies I worked at, that they were being thoughtful about developing based on their specific culture and their specific type of company. And I think that's a really important thing for people to understand is that, they were, one, they were always a work in progress. The work was never really complete. And two, it was a very thoughtful cross-functional approach to developing workplace over time. And I think that a lot of companies see the surface level. They copy the surface level. And, like, that's what a lot of companies did. And they said, oh, well, if we put ping pong tables <laughs> and make the office bright and airy and do open office, like, that's going to make us creative. It's like, no, what makes you – what makes for good innovation and good collaboration is developing a like you know uh, a cultural model that works for you, and then you know the physical model of your spaces is based off the cultural model and your work model, right? And then once you understand those two things, you can start to develop the physical space you know in that image. And I think that's hard for people to understand, and it's hard for people when there's not an easy button. You know, I think people think like, oh well, people have done workplaces before. There should just be an easy button. It's like, yes, but 
you would never copy somebody's house just because, you know, you like the style of their house. That would make for a really bad living situation for you. You have very different needs and you have very different ways of living than the next person. Um, I think similarly, people just copy paste people's workplaces as though uh, that would work for everybody. But that's not how it works. That's actually a really good, really good analogy. Um, you said something that I think is really interesting, and that is the fact of using design intent, right? So there's an intent behind the design in terms that's ideally aligned with the culture. So the information behind it, that mm-hmm. seems to suggest that there's data at play here. And obviously thinking about like, well, Google for certain, I don't know about the other ones, but you know, how much did they actually use data to drive those types of decisions? Yeah, I mean, I was in the space planning side of Google when I, you know, before I left and I was doing all the moves and updates and things of that nature uh, in North America. And I would say that, you know, they were always looking at the information they had and trying to make better decisions and looking at, I mean, they were obviously, and this goes for food programs are probably a good example of like data that actually has an effect, right? Which is, you don't think of food as data, but there's a lot of information in food Mm -hmm. consumption. And I think the intention there was, you know, measuring how many, like what people were eating, how we could encourage people to like, you know, consume healthier snacks. And, you know, a lot of that comes from not just quantitative information, like how many like snacks or how many pounds of peanuts are we going through? How many pounds of M&Ms are we going through? But, you know, qualitative, you know, getting feedback from people, observing in person, like observing people using the kitchens, seeing how they interact with different objects that you put in the kitchens. So it was the balance of those two types of data, right, qualitative and quantitative, that made their um, design intent very good. And Dropbox did a very similar job of this. I remember talking to the chef uh, when we were designing the new headquarters of Dropboxes in 2015, 2016, and he was like, Omar, he's like, do you know why we played our food here? I was like, well, the presentation is awesome. Like, I, I mean, he's like, he's like, yeah, the presentation's great. He's like, but he's like, I plate the food so I can control the portions so we can measure down to like this ounce what we're actually putting out. And then we can measure the number of plates and the number of portions. And then we can successfully budget and do our procurement better. So we're not wasting food. I'm like, oh, so it looks better, better experience. And you're measuring like uh, more successfully. That's great. And I think that, you know, people don't realize how much thought goes into some of these programs to make them successful. And, you know, say what you want about that time period of technology companies, you know, perks, whatever, food, free food. Yes, it was designed to keep people like in the office and like encourage people to be at work and encourage people to, you know, share meals at work, et cetera. Um, I think we're beyond that now in some ways. I, that doesn't mean I don't think we should break bread together. I think we should. But I think, you know, that the kinds of information we're going to have to measure are probably going to change. Um, and we're seeing companies start to recognize that a little bit now. And like that, you know, just measuring utilization is not enough or just measuring yeah. occupancy is not enough. Not because, enough. Yeah. yeah, it's not enough. You need more information. And you need better data uh, sources. And I think that's um, that's tough for people, because if anything, the job is infinitely more interesting, but also infinitely more difficult. And we're all having to learn new skills to, you know, adapt to the future of work and the future of workplace. And I think if you've been in the same job for 30 years or 20 years, even myself having been in this for, I think, 16 years now, uh, it's hard to adapt. And it's constant change and constant adaptation. You know, we went from facilities management to workplace to workplace experience to employee experience to future of work, remote, whatever this is, uh, within 20, was it 23 years from 2000 to 2023? And I think it's a lot of change for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what's interesting, too, is is that um, as you're talking about the different roles 
and, and focus more so that has evolved within the corporate real estate space. I often find myself, you know, I read sometimes I read some articles that are coming from thought leaders in the corporate real estate space. And, and, and I often think to myself, why is that coming from somebody that's in corporate real estate? Like that's more an HR focused piece or it's more, I don't know, just, it just doesn't mentally, it doesn't fit within the construct of what we know to be corporate real estate, because number one, you have no control over it, right? You can't control mm-hmm. productivity and of employees, right? And I don't know if it was you or someone said something the other day. No, I was actually I was talking to someone the other day. We were talking about productivity and he's like, productivity is like love. He's like, try to measure love. Right. <laughs> and I was like, it got me thinking for like three or four days. And I was like, you know what? It's so true because it's such a personal thing, right? It's a feeling, right? I'm going to wake up this morning and I, yesterday I had all the intention in the world that I was going to have a productive day today, but I woke mm-hmm. up this morning. And I'm like, you know what? Today's not the day. And I've had a few of those this, this past week. Right. And, and again, that's not something that I don't think a business, HR, corporate real estate, IT, anybody can really control. And so this whole thing about, you know, all of these changes impacting productivity and is just all a wash because it's not really, it's not really true. But yeah. I think the part that I think is interesting is that when you are aware of, like I was thinking when you're talking about like how many packs of M&Ms get consumed, I'd be like, I wonder if there's, again, the curiosity kicking in is like, I wonder if there's like a specific time of day that, you know, everybody's going in to get treats because, you know, energy levels are mm-hmm. down. And then it's, okay, when you see that pattern, what can we do as an organization to prevent that from happening? Like maybe you need to yoga break or something to just kind of, you know, get people re-energized, right? And so that's kind of how I look at it is to say, you know, there's an intent. The intent is then sort of supported by research. And then mm-hmm. there's the piece that comes after, which is what's the reality of it? And then once you learn the reality, how do you adjust? How yeah. do you go back and make the adjustments and tweak, which is not, number one, it's not linear. And number two, it's never a one and done. I mean, Ask anybody in corporate real estate, when has it ever been one and done with like <laughs> No, it's never as and well, I think you know, I think you hit on an important point though. Productivity is not really productivity is measurable in very specific ways for certain types of outputs, right? And like and then that's even still debatable. Cal Newport was on the um HBS podcast a few weeks ago. He's the author of Deep Work and he was talking about how for engineers You know, there's obviously like agile methodology makes remote work really successful because in agile methodology, you're pulling down tasks and you're pulling down and you're writing code and you're like, you can easily, you know, remotely do that. And there's a very good standard way of doing that that is, you know, repeatable and scalable. And that's great. But for a lot of knowledge work, that's not the same thing. And like measuring productivity of someone who's a workplace coordinator or an employee experience manager. Are you, okay, you have to create KPIs, but what are you, are you measuring it based on number of events you held this quarter? Are you measuring it based off of, and a lot of people, something that's something we're also like, you know, obviously concerned about with the collective is how do we help people develop better business cases and better measures for, you know, to not justify the existence of, but to enable great conversations with, you know, work leaders about workplace and, you know, why the benefits of uh, workplace. But I think that when we talk about productivity, it becomes this very nascent conversation 
And you have to like define what kind of productivity we're talking about, what industry, what team, what, you know, specialty in what geography, because if we all, we think of like ourselves, I think as like a, uh, as a monoculture sometimes, that's not how the world is, right? You know, productivity is measured very differently in the U.S. versus versus other parts of the world. And I think that when we talk about that optimization that you were just talking about, right, where it's like, okay, like our goal is to have productive, healthy employees. Let's say that was our goal. And that's our intent is productive, healthy employees. There's got to be a tipping point where productivity tips into unhealthy. Like what level do you optimize to as yourself as a human before it tips into unhealthy? And I think about this, especially as we started getting back to the conference cycle, right? Like I can see your badges hanging in the background of your, you know, setup right now. I have, all my, <laughs> I have all my conference badges. That's just from last year where we started like, you know, doing facilitation. And like, that's where the idea for collective came from was from a lot of these conversations with people. But I think about ramping back up to going back in person, um, going from the pandemic, you know, time period of like not really going to in-person events to ramping back up to that. And it was exhausting. And something my wife and I talked about on a very personal level was, okay, what level of intensity do we want to go back to? Because, you know, if I look back at it, I think I was burnt out in 2019. And it was the passing of my mother that caused me to switch careers and to switch jobs and to, like, really reconsider my life. That was just two months before the pandemic. But I think we're collectively, the you know, the entire like workplace world is having that same consideration. And I you know every employee is having the same consideration of how productive can I be without reaching that point? Or where do I reach a point of exhaustion? And how do I have a better health and work-life balance? And I think that people are optimizing for that now. And I think that um, companies should be aware of like, what is that tipping point? You know, what is that yeah. tipping point between productivity and having a healthy life? And, you know, Obviously, the employee side of this is going to be more on the health side, right? And like the company side, it might be more like, hey, we want you to be healthy and productive. Can we optimize a little bit for productive sometimes? And I think, you know, finding the balance between those two things is, I think, going to be interesting. Yeah. And just to add to that, so, you know, as you're talking, the whole concept of optimizing productivity kind of makes me laugh a little bit because you think back on, you know, several months ago, I think it was probably in late Q3, early Q4, maybe it could have even been earlier, um, you know, when the whole concept of quiet quitting, you know, emerged. And mm-hmm. it got me thinking about productivity because it's like, well, what is quiet quitting really? Is quiet quitting pushing the boundaries around optimizing productivity, as you as you say, where it's when like when you were talking about, you know, engineering, right? So they have their list of tasks or whatever, they're pulling things and that's how they're measuring productivity. From the employee's perspective is this is my list of to-dos. I get those things done. I've had a super productive day, right? Whether yeah. it takes me an hour or it takes me eight hours to do it, the measurement is I've produced, I've met the requirements for productivity, right? And this is where I think we run into the challenges that we do around product activity measurement is that, like I said before, is that I could wake up this morning and feel super productive that I could, you know, get a whole whack of stuff done in two hours and have six hours of me time if I wanted to, right? Is mm-hmm. that okay? If I'm in that mindset and I've ha- that, I've, that happens to me sometimes, I get up at five o'clock and by nine o'clock, it's like I've done three days worth of work and it's like, okay, <laughs> now I can start working on other stuff to get ahead so that I can yeah. keep up with the day to day, right? But when you sort of put that into context and you think, okay, if the company's pushing for productivity to get more out of people, right, it's not because they're not being productive. 
they are being productive based on what you're expecting of them. But it begs the question, who is the onus of responsibility on when it comes to exceeding that expectation, right? Yeah. Which is kind of where that whole conversation around quiet quitting started is, well, it's not that people are not working or people are not productive. They're productive based on what's expected of them, based on goals and whatever it is that's been set. If I'm going to take initiative to essentially do more because that's that's what drives me, that's my prerogative, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that I'm more or less productive than you. That's just my way of working, right? Yeah. And I think that that productivity is it's interesting in that way, right? Because you have this. Well, I guess, first of all, I think quiet quitting is a false narrative, right? It's like it's just the recycling of a storyline of like, you know, resting, investing, which was a very popular thing, right? It's like, oh, well, like if my company is not going to give me more, why would I like contribute more of myself to this thing and burn myself out for X thing? Um, And I think there's a natural there's a natural human debate here that quiet quitting is kind of like uh, putting a headline on top of um, in that. Not everyone works the same. Not everyone's productivity is the same on every single day. And some people, you burn out because your company has asked too much of you or they've like, they're like, oh, well, you're doing 110. What if you did 120? That's not sustainable long term. And I think that like, you know, there's a, there's something about the taking advantage of human productivity to the point of burning people out um, is a toxic culture trait. And I think that's very negative. And so we want to you know, for for me at least personally, um, I never worked well in those uh, those scenarios. And um, as somebody who's very focused on whatever I'm working on, I kind of zone in very hard on the thing I'm working on and become very passionate about it. But I again, I work the same way you do. I think that in my mind, like some days I wake up. I mean, I wake up every day at six a.m. just because I naturally wake up at that time. I don't know why. Uh, and you know, some days I'll be like, okay, let's go. Like I just wake up at six 30 and I start doing stuff and I start going at six 30. I'll type some stuff out by 9am. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, I've done a bunch of stuff, but I'm like, I could still do more, but I take a break in the morning and I do other things and I like go for a walk and I like maintain work-life balance in that way. Uh, is that bad? I don't think so. But I think it's also different because I'm, you know, working with my co-founder, Kayla, now, we have our own way of working and we are doing it in a different way and we're managing ourselves and we're, you know, trying to get build something new. And I think that requires a lot of extra output. And so, yeah, did I do work this Saturday? Absolutely. But will I do work on Saturdays and Sundays always? I don't think so. I think that when you're managing your own company versus working at a company, they're two very different types of output and they're two very different types of standards because one, you're creating your own standard and the other one is based off the standards of society, which is Monday through Friday is the work week, Saturday and Sunday is the weekend. That is a construct that we as a society have created and that we're fitting work inside of that box. Yeah. I think that, you know, that's more about time zones than it is about anything else. And I think that's the interesting thing too, is like, but as we become more remote and more asynchronous, time zone management and where you hire people and where you grow your team becomes more and more important. My co-founder Kayla is in Atlanta. I'm in Los Angeles. We manage our time zones the way that we think is best. She works a little later sometimes. I work a little earlier sometimes. But I think that becomes really, really important. So I think it's, yeah, I, I think there's, I will ramble about productivity and like time zones for the rest of this, like, you know, till the end of time probably. But I, But I think that there is no one size fits all to productivity or workplace or design. And I think that's important for people to understand because 
it comes down, it has to come down. I've seen you write about this before. It has to come down to the team level and the individual level. Otherwise, you're not getting deep enough on things. If you're just setting standards at a company level, you're going to fail and your data isn't going to be good enough. Yeah, it's way it's way too generic. I mean, I, I would say that, you know, just in, in um, response to the comment that you made about whether you're working as an independent or you're working for a company, as someone who's worked in both of those worlds quite extensively, I don't think that there really is a difference. I think it's if the company gets it, they get it. And you Mm -hmm. can exercise the same level of freedoms, dare I say that word, uh, of being able to tune into your most productive state. Like that's one of the things that I learned very early on in my career, especially when I first started working from home was the first couple of years was like, oh my God, this is horrible. It's like, I can't, I can't manage. And then over time it became oh, I started to realize that I'm super alert at like the wee hours of the morning mm-hmm. or I'm, you know, my best, I don't know, whatever thing is at like after midnight, I get like a second wind, right? Yeah. So, And so once you start to pick up on, if I have to write, I'm going to be most productive doing that at 5 a.m. If I have to do thinking, like where I'm trying to figure something out, that's a, you know, after midnight thing for me. And I yeah. can do it in like, you know, half an hour versus trying to spend six hours trying to figure something out during the day when my brain just can't get there. And so when you're in tune with your capability, I think that that Mm -hmm. makes a tremendous difference in terms of how you work, what you produce, how long it takes you to produce, and essentially how you then want to use the free time that you gain as a result of maximizing your own personal productivity to do other things, whether they're personal whether it's to do a side hustle or just to, you know, continue to evolve in your, in your career. Yeah. And I think, I think that's an important point though, right? Like you learn this over time. I learned this through reading and like, you know, curiosity, curiosity, as you were saying. And I think that we need to enable management to teach people how to be, you know, how to manage themselves in some ways. Right. And we need to help people understand how to build systems like this for themselves. And if we can do that, then we'll have a much more balanced and productive, but also healthier, uh, you know, set of employees that are working because right now, most people don't understand still how to set up systems like that for themselves. And that's why they wind up burning out because they don't understand their own best time for working on X. They don't understand how to set boundaries for themselves. They don't understand how to set up systems for themselves. And I see this in workplace people as well as in like, you know, regular employees. And I think that, um, it's something that we need to start training people on because if you can learn how to do that, you're just much happier and I think much more productive because you're happier and because you have a, a set of guardrails for yourself in order to like make yourself actually successful at home or in the office or wherever you're working from. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I can't believe an hour's already passed. I know. What? This is this is just too good of a conversation. Any any final thoughts or comments that you wanted to, to share? No, I think uh, we're just very excited at Collective about the future of workplace. We think this is the most exciting time um, in workplace that we, we've ever experienced. And I th- we hope that everyone will soon start to see that the same way. Um, we're excited to have people join us and we're excited to start sharing what we're doing with the world. Fantastic. Thanks, Omar. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Sandra.